Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Ryan Stacy's Silver Screams, the new podcast where each installment I look at some of the defining moments of some of our most favorite horror films. I'm your host, indie filmmaker Ryan Stacy. In our previous two episodes, we have explored mainstream movies legitimizing the genre via some horror classics released in the 1970s, Carrie and Halloween. This episode, we are looking through the lens of legits as we look at the meta-infused iconic 1996 slasher film, Scream. This is my favorite horror movie, as well as top five film ever made, hands down. Scream and its sequels were the touchstone moments of my entree into the world of horror movies. I was 11 when I watched this flick at a cousin's home while visiting eastern Kentucky. The area is full of lush trees cascading over mountains and down into the hollers, creating a panorama not unlike the area surrounding main character Sidney Prescott's northern California home. This created the perfect environment to absorb this movie and fall into it with my sisters and my cousins, who were the ones that were insisting we watched it. While Scream was not the first horror film I watched, it was the first to teach me to love them. I was not afraid of this one, just thrilled and chilled, so delighted to go along for this ride with this hip young cast. I was addicted, and I had to have more. Luckily, we got Scream 2 just a few months later, and more films just like it for nearly the next decade. These dynamite films dropped in the internet's formative years, housing leaked scripts and chat rooms to help fans piece together any detail that could be possibly gleaned for the next Scream film. Horror had not seen anything like this. Pop culture had not seen anything like this. And what would follow its release would ensure that the legacy and legitimacy of Scream would be instantly ingrained in pop culture history forever. Do you have a boyfriend? No. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Yeah, that's too. I think she wants a motive. <laughs> I don't really believe in motive, Sid. I mean, did Norman Bates have a motive? Don't think so. Last time. I touched on how Stephen King was in a major bind when Doubleday published his debut novel, Carrie. And burgeoning screenwriter Kevin Williamson could probably relate. He had transplanted to California from his native Greensboro, North Carolina. He had bills to pay, student loan debts had piled up, his nerves were shot. He'd written scripts, but he desperately needed to write something that just would sell to a studio. He thought he might have just the thing. Williamson had also been recently asked to house set for a friend in the deserts of Palm Springs, so he took the time to isolate himself and write the perfect horror story. He would adapt a stage play he'd produced in college, centered on a teenage girl at the mercy of an unseen killer, terrorizing her via the telephone in a game of slasher killer cat and mouse. In three days' time, Kevin Williamson had completed his first draft, as well as the treatment for two sequels. And its title? Scary Movie. His agent sent the script out on a Friday, where a bidding war commenced over the weekend. All the major players in Hollywood wanted this script. Horror wasn't in a great place, and original, inventive content was scarce. Most titles in the genre were straight to video. Wes Craven, the master of the horror film, had dropped two duds in theaters, 
by 1996, 1994's Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and 1995's A Vampire in Brooklyn. It was a barren, dying genre, or so it felt like. So this bidding war was incredible. This story was lighting fires, and soon there was a winner. The Weinstein Brothers at Miramax Pictures, a Disney subsidiary that intended to release Scary Movie via its own subsidiary, Dimension Films. But what made this film so compelling? What was selling the shit out of this script? Perhaps this sourceless quote from Williamson's IMDb will offer up some insight. I like emotional horror. I don't like horror movies. I hate them. (laughs) But if you can make emotional horror movies, I'm in. If I can care and root for the main character, then I'm in. I don't like stupid stories about people I don't know. There's a slew of low-budget horror films out there where you just don't give a crap. But once in a while, something will come along, like Halloween in 1978, and there's this one girl, Jamie Lee Curtis, who's that young, sweet girl in the midst of all of this, and you just root for her and feel for her. All the way through the chasing, you have to figure out how to do that and care for the characters. And care we would. By the time Scary Movie began filming, aforementioned horror god Wes Craven had signed on to direct. The cast would be headlined by stars like Drew Barrymore and Courtney Cox of TV's Friends. The other core cast would embody the trendy, self-aware teens who dominated the mid-90s movies, but better. These characters would make us laugh, they would move and enthrall us while also chilling us to the bone. Scary Movie would shoot in under 60 days, and right at the edge of this intense, productive shoot, the Weinstein brothers decided to change the title. They wanted something that packed a harder punch, something less self-referential, and with a better marketing gimmick. Bob Weinstein's brother liked the Michael and Janet Jackson duet Scream, and it stuck. Scary Movie was now Scream. Producer Kathy Conrad states in the Behind the Scream documentary, featured on many editions of the original trilogy's home media release, that Variety gave Scream a DOA when the film released in December 1996. DOA means dead on arrival. But something interesting happened here. The film began performing better and better. According to Box Office Mojo, the film was made for around 14 million. The film opened with a soft 6 million in the fifth spot. Two weeks later, it climbed 10.5%, peaking at the third spot. For eight weeks, Scream danced about the top 10, eventually leaving theaters four months after its premiere, only to return to theaters again in April 1997. At the end of its theatrical runs, Scream's worldwide gross would be over $173 million. Miramax immediately fast-tracked Scream 2, releasing it 51 weeks after its predecessor. So Scream had a bidding war, an auteur director, a respectable cast, and was now becoming a franchise due to its mega success. The proof was in the box office pudding. Horror could be profitable. 
it could gain mass public reception. This scary movie was reminding Hollywood that they could spend a little bit of money on a solid script and production. Horror did not have to be the hokey, straight-to-video schlock it had really become. It didn't have to be like the very movies that Scream was satirizing. Hollywood took notice. Right on its coattails came Columbia's I Know What You Did Last Summer in 1997 and Urban Legend in 1998. The former featured a script penned by Kevin Williamson. He took the tepid YA thriller by Lois Duncan and transformed it into another hip slasher flick about four friends with a dark secret in coastal North Carolina who are pursued by an unknown assailant with a hook and fisherman slicker. Williamson set a lot of his stories in his home state, with Scary Movie even set in his hometown of Greensboro, before it became Scream's Woodsboro, California. Scream's success was enough to generate interest in reviving the very franchise that inspired it, Halloween. Kevin Williamson would also be hired to put his touches on that sequel script, releasing in 1998 as Halloween H2O. Notice the primary trend yet? That's right. Every studio had to have a Scream. They saw the dollar signs that it had generated for the Weinstein brothers, even going so far as to hire, or rehire in the case of H2O as it was a Dimension release, the creator of Scream to pen a slasher script. Regardless, audiences were there for every moment. The late 90s became saturated with slasher imitations, all trying to recreate that trendy, wordy dialogue Kevin Williamson had now begun blowing up television with on Dawson's Creek. The thing is, none of them really performed like the first Scream. The first sequel, Scream 2, didn't even make as much. And the performances of Scream 3 and Scream 4 just didn't measure up. Here's hoping for the upcoming revival, entitled Scream, currently set for release in January 2022. The ever-mentioned titles from Columbia TriStar were vainly attempted to be converted into franchises. Both received sequels with Scream-like posters and trailers promising the next chilling chapter in their respective stories. In both films, third parts were released with zero fanfare and went straight to home media. Their plots had nothing to do with their prior installments either. The Scream magic really fizzled out in horror just as, as soon as it had started. So what happened? Well, I can think of two things specifically. The issue of violence in cinema and the Wayans Brothers 2000 comedic spoof scary movie. Both affected Scream, the horror genre, and pop culture in general. On April 20th, 1999, the worst mass shooting until that point in U.S. history happened. Students and staff of Columbine High School in Aurora, Colorado were the targets of a brutal horrifying attack by two armed pupils. Immediately, violent video games, heavy metal music, mainly Marilyn Manson, and movies like Scream and The Matrix found themselves the targets of scrutiny. Truthfully, Scream had been the subject of much derision since its pre-production because of the story dealing with teenagers killing each other. The film had allegedly inspired unrelated but various murders and crimes with one minor being murdered by killers in Ghostface costumes. Before the studio could argue the scripts and the materials of validity or importance to the studios, but now it couldn't be ignored. The third film would release in 2000, closing out the now famous trilogy with a lighter, more comedic tone. 
and other horror films turned up their comedy and toned down the violence as well. Going into the new millennium, which at one point in time felt like it would be a new era of creative freedom and expression, was going to be something else altogether. The mass call for the culling of violence in cinema was louder than the masses crying for these great horror films. This unofficial censorship obviously did not last forever, but the horror genre did water itself down for a couple years, until Michael Bay began the remake trend in 2003 with the very brutal but decent remake of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Scary Movie was the title given to the horror spoof of Scream. At the time, this movie was actually pretty hilarious, but because it lampoons so many then-current trends, it's so dated and it really hasn't aged well. Unintentionally, the send-up really had a negative effect on the slasher trend. Once you saw a scary movie, you couldn't help but think of it when you watched Scream. A few years back, my friend Shayna and I were showing her younger brother the films for the first time. All throughout the viewing of Scream, he made comments and callbacks to Scary Movie. He was even able to figure out the big reveal because of how much Scary Movie ripped its plot, in majority, from Scream. Don't you feel that takes the blush from the business of Scream? But the takeaway here is that Scream was doing so many things as a movie. It was inspiring filmmakers to think harder about the content of their work, making screenwriters try to write sharper, wittier stories. Audiences found they enjoyed a little mystery blended into their horror films, which no doubt generated way better suspense. We could blend elements into traditional horror movies, and it gave them the pulp to transcend their stereotypes. Don't compelling stories and layered characters and tragic or dramatic situations often find themselves deemed legitimate movies or films? If so, let's touch on three things that make this valid argument for Scream. Number one, I mentioned earlier Williamson's development of his characters. We see early on in Scream that these teens are complex with layered interpersonal relationships and their own bruises and traumas to carry by their 17 or 18 year old ages in the film. Sydney Prescott is a grieving daughter, having lost her mother to tragedy, giving her many insecurities and emotional vulnerabilities. Her friend Tatum Riley is beautiful and curvaceous, choosing to display her body more visibly than her peer. Her personality is wild, and she's obviously in love with the attention her femininity brings her. And these are just the female characters. I could devote an entire episode to the, well, we'll say complicated entanglement that is shared between Billy Loomis and his partner in crime, Stu Mocker. Number two, complete story arcs. All important story arcs are tied up in nice, neat bows. One thing we all notice in a film are plot holes. Some are punched through and through with them. Scream really isn't. Even the characters mentioned offhand, like Neil Prescott, the film's red herring, get enough closure that we're not wondering about them after. And whatever was not solved was done so on purpose, either because Kevin Williamson didn't feel it was necessary to the story, Hank Loomis, Billy's father, or because he knew what lay ahead for the survivors in the impending sequels like Cotton Weary or Mrs. Loomis, Billy's estranged, only mentioned mother. Number three. Scream possesses a lot of heart. These characters are feeling and beautifully expressing things. By the time the core cast is getting knocked off and really fighting for their lives, we are cheering for their survival. When we first meet reporter Gail Weathers, we are meant to hate her. She's clearly Sydney's antagonist. So during the climax, when we think Sydney's about to get it, 
and Gail intervenes with a gun and a classic one-liner, we love her. We are excited she's okay, and she was there to save her rival. Again, these are just a few things that make Scream special. Every person who adores it does so for their own reasons. Hopefully yours means as much to you as mine do me. Thanks for listening, everyone. I know that your time is valuable, and I appreciate you spending a little bit of it with me. This show is co-produced with my partner at Concept Media Films, Sean Burkett, who also composes the music for the series, and does my logo. This episode was written and performed by me, Ryan Stacey, and my dear friend, filmmaker and actor, Roger Connors, who appeared as Kevin Williamson. Make sure to follow Roger's latest movie, Rebirth, on Instagram via at rebirthmovie. This is a beautiful updated take on George A. Romero's 1968 classic, Night of the Living Dead. You will not be sorry you did. Join me for the next installment of Ryan Stacy's Silver Screams when I tackle the tagline, Inspired by True Events, and the title that most infamously used it, 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So until then... Thank you.